Hi, and welcome to another episode of Shining in the Gray. This is your host, Vanessa Sands Rivera. I am so excited to share with you guys this interview. I had a conversation with Diana Ostrike, and she was kind enough to let me record it to share it with you guys. I think that you guys will be just as challenged, um, you will be just as encouraged as I was, and I feel like this is a really thought-provoking conversation that will help us really think a little bit more about the way we move in the world. And I'm really, really honored to have had this conversation with Diana. And I would like to say that even though I threaten to edit the episode, because I got a little choked up there for a second, nothing was edited, as you'll see, because I didn't even take out my threat to edit. But um, I think that you guys will be just as challenged and encouraged as I was by this conversation. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Okay, so... Miss Diana, welcome to Shining in the Gray. I am, I, I have to tell you that I'm excited because I feel like this is the first time ever that I meet a real life superhero. And so for that reason, I want to introduce you to my listeners. There's so much about you that I just think is fantastic, even from like our interactions on Instagram and, and, and all your writing. But so for those of you who don't know Diana, uh, Diana is a fierce lover of people. Uh, she is a deep thinker an advocate for the marginalized. Uh, she is a weaver of words and a bearer of stories and also soon to be my new BFF. But on top of all of that, she has these really neat titles like um, she was a sexual assault nurse and a combat vet and currently is serving as a key relationships officer in uh, one of my favorite organiza- organizations, Preemptive Love Coalition. So, Diana, other than I need your assurance we're going to be best friends forever, welcome. <laughs> Vanessa, <laughs> my we, already, we already are BFFs, and I am so excited that you are having these conversations and you are letting people come together and listen to your questions. So thank you for having me on. I am super honored and excited. Thank you. That's so sweet. So you know what just came to mind is that we are actually in the wake of um, the New Zealand shootings. And um, I think that a lot of us are reeling from that news and I want to thank you and Preemptive Love Coalition for giving people the words and the action steps to reach out and to show love and compassion to our Muslim brothers and sisters after um, those the, the atrocities committed against them and the fear that they're currently living in. Um, what What is it that propels you to live this out in this way, because I can't imagine that it's easy and I can't imagine that everyone is cheering you on all the time, especially sometimes in our conservative upbringings, as far as like religious, like religiously conservative, politically conservative. (sighs) Sure. I believe that we are created for a better invitation than most of us have been given We are typically grown up um, to be told that we have to be part of a group. And it's kind of like the eighth grade lunch table. I don't know if any of you have read the book Wonder or seen the movie, but it's the classic, you know, hey, I'm going to go sit with so-and-so. And the lunch table is like, well, you can't. If If you choose to go across there and sit with a kid that nobody's sitting with, then you don't have a place here. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a it's a kids book, but I really think that as people that's a little bit of our history. Mm-hmm. And at, at least it was from my faith tradition, we were we were really taught to prove our allegiance and our love to God by who we wouldn't 
be around and what we wouldn't do. And out of that, it leaves a big gap in people actually doing good. <laughs> like we, I, mm-hmm. I wasn't really told like the good to do. I was just told what not to do. And I think that we're made for more invitations than that. And so I choose to show up with the people that are being pushed to the margins because I don't believe anybody is disposable. I think that God came to break down the barriers and the Mm -hmm. animosity and the fear Mm -hmm. between us. And that's something that we embody. And, And people love to say we can agree to disagree, which is true. But what they don't say, they don't necessarily teach us, well, how do you how do you stand alongside someone you disagree with? Yes. Because disagreement is healthy and normal because we're people. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is a positive thing, but we've been taught to demonize anybody who doesn't worship in our specific denomination. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at how many of the Christian denominations exist because of disagreement, well, we can't worship together if we don't all agree. New denomination. Disagreement. Nope, we cannot stay together if we, there's no generosity Mm -hmm. in our worship spaces, which means we have to exclude, exclude, split, split, split. And and I want to bring that back. I think that love is big, and I think that we're supposed to be unifiers, and it's okay to disagree. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not going to lose our Jesus card or whatever card you hold, like if that lunch table is gonna is gonna tell you that you no longer belong, then they really they really aren't for you. Right. It's right. really about them. So that's been one of the things that propels me to refuse to be used by any of these groups anymore. Um, yeah. And I I do think my faith tradition, like the whole thing, is is summed up in one thing of like, what's this eternal life? It's to love God and love your neighbor. And I don't believe it's an either or. And I don't think it's something we can agree to disagree on. I think it's literally incomplete. And the way that I grew up politically and in my faith, it really was about loving God and him loving us. I wasn't taught that how I love my neighbor is actually 50% of this thing when Jesus is asked, what's eternal life? Like, Mm -hmm. it didn't even rate. It was not, like, there's so many things that we can agree to disagree on. But this, you can't do 50% of one thing and not think that it's going to look incomplete, feel incomplete, and our neighbors are not going to feel loved. And faith people tend to not be known mm-hmm. for showing up like yeah. and i think that's something i want to change i want to break off the fear that says that if you show up at a mosque it means that you are agreeing and doing anything more than just mourning with those who mourn and i think that fear is what divides us that fear is what ultimately keeps us from living living mm-hmm. life yeah. um to the abundant way that I believe we can. And so I'm just totally chucking that. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run to the margins. And why? Because I see, I see the most beautiful things in the people who are being told they're disposable, they're dangerous, they're to be de- they're to be despised. And this is just a growing way because I grew up in such a stunted way yeah. about loving my neighbors it was a fearful way it was self-protective it was serving almost a a brand more than it was actually recreating heaven on earth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I think that sometimes um what ha- what happens in our the faith traditions that we grew up in I know in mine um as well is that there is this underlying message that we must agree to love and and love does not have any buts you know there's no there's there's 
no need to add anything to that, you know, and, and I think that it's something that a lot of us were, grew up with, um, or, and, and it didn't even need to be stated overtly, but love required agreement. Um, yeah, definitely. and, uh, and it's scary. How do you love when you don't agree with someone and what does that look like? And, and love- let's just put a finer point on that. Like, mm-hmm. let's, let's, So I just put it back on myself and I'm like, I don't know, Vanessa, if I agree with everything you do in your marriage, or I don't know if I agree with how you parent, but when I flip it back on myself, I don't agree with half the things I do as a parent and I'm just one person and I don't agree with half the things that I actually walk out of my marriage. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this is about agreement. Like, this is about the direction. This is about choosing the posture of loving the way we've been loved, which is preemptive. It chooses to love first, chooses to trust before I know if someone else trusts me. And that's not a, if I can't even agree with myself, then I don't think it's, I don't think it's a goal to only love people that agree with me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And God doesn't, agree with everything that I do and he, and he loves me <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I just think, like there's been this like false narrative that has woven in and it has suffocated the really beautiful things that I think we're called to the really beautiful ways that we can see violence and we can unmake it I think mm-hmm. I think we're restorers I think things are meant to get broken but this incredible transformational love rebuilds things and it's even better than before because once it's been bitter the sweetness is so much better. Mm-hmm. I absolutely. It's and 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 I feel like hindsight is what really gives us that perspective and gives us that um, experience in the present of what is now and what can be. And um, what? Tell me. Tell me about what that was like for you to go from that way of thinking that, that, um, a lot of us have grown up with and are, are trying to shed and peel the layers off of to go from, from that kind of self-protection to the posture of grace and love and acceptance and openness to the other and those that we may not agree with. So what was that like? to yeah. wrestle with that and what like what caused it what caused it and what did it what did, what caused it and what did it feel like in that yeah. transition for me I'm just gonna admit that I must be a tough nut to crack because normal people can grow in their thoughts and I had to go to a war I had to be deployed to the Iraq war right when it was happening. We hadn't declared war. I was part of the preemptive strike where they had a huge troop surge. And it was really fast, 30 days, Mm. where I got called up to being deployed. And I was 23 years old, so I thought that I was an adult. Mm-hmm. But at 39, I was a baby. I was just repeating things that had been told to me. And so... When I got there, right after we got there, we were in a meeting in a desert tent that night, and they said, tomorrow morning, we're going to roll over into the active war zone. And, you know, here's your truck, here's your assignment, here's the driver, here's what you're doing. And they were giving us the briefing. And the sergeant said, I want everybody to know that it's a common enemy tactic and this was Al-Qaeda at the time. But some would say um, it's 2.0 ISIS. It's just who we would now call ISIS. And they said it's a common enemy tactic that they'll push a little Iraqi child in front of the American convoy of trucks in order to cause the convoy to stop or slow down. And then they attack the soldiers at the back of the convoy. He said, I hope you understand your duty is to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow, which means you cannot break Mm. to avoid harming a child. He's like, and if you don't feel like you can fulfill your duty, 
Stand up now and identify yourself. Ooh. So that was the longest night of my life. And this all was going to happen in eight hours. You know, the next morning, this was nighttime. I was walking back to my tent and everything in me was just trembling because I understood and I agreed with Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. With what the sergeant said, I had signed up. I had already pledged my loyalty to this uniform. I had said I would never disobey an order. And I grew up in a church that taught me that to serve my country was to serve God. Yeah. And to take a life for my country was ultimately to take a life for God. I am a third-generation Army veteran. My mom, my dad served, like, dug on everybody. So I believed that there were hard things that that had to you know that you had to do and this was part of the sacrifice but i remember wrestling in my cot that night and i remember just telling god i have to i have to take a life to save a life and i don't know if it was audible i don't know if it was just in my head but it was so loud i heard this whisper back scream in my head but i love them diana mm-hmm. i love them too and i remember telling god no <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad time to put your hand in front of everything that my church taught me everything that my family believes everything i believe i'm like this is too late I have, oh, I'm here. There is no way out of this. But he, but I just kept hearing this voice. I love them, Diana. Mm-hmm. And something in me, though this was really killing me, I knew that all the stories I had learned in that little church basement was about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there was Jesus who never did an act of violence, Jesus who interrupted violence, Jesus who, Mm -hmm. when Peter cut off the ear, he's like, this is not my way. And he instantly unmade that act of violence by healing the ear. So Mm -hmm. I had learned all these stories about Jesus and none of them were about taking up the sword or killing for your country. And I even knew the Ten Commandments, but somehow I think I just exempted. Yeah. If it had to do with my safety, then the Ten Commandments were nil. And if it had to do with my country, the Ten Commandments were nil. Like, there was this escape clause when it came to me and my safety or my family or my country. And in the desert, that was the first time that it really, I could see, I could feel Mm -hmm. that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, that he was asking me something different. And I liken it to, I call it my desert baptism because it was the first time that I felt like my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven was asking me something different than my, than my citizenship of my country. Mm-hmm. And before then, they were really intertwined and I never had to make a choice. I never had to unwind them and say, what if my everything my country is for democracy and capitalism and what if the kingdom of God may ask me for something different? I just never had to live in that reality until that night in the tent. And so I felt like, I felt like God was asking me to, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God first. And that's a, there's no, there's no death in heaven. There's no sickness when God gets his way all the time. There's none of this. Right. And so I felt like I I got down on my knees beside that green cot, and finally I was like, fine, God, there's something so true that I know in my, in my body, in my spirit, in my head that, that you do love the person who I've been told is my enemy. And I just realized that I was, he was asking me to lay down my weapon and to refuse to take a life. And so I... I feel like that was the night that he asked for everything, that mm-hmm. I was going to have to give up my first allegiance to my, my uniform, to my country, to my church, to the places that I belonged in my family. Like, this would not be okay. And at the worst, 
if I disobeyed an order, I could get sent to military prison. I mean, that's actually the best at the worst. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't really make it back because in yeah. time of war, loyalty is everything. Mm-hmm. And friendly fire isn't just in the movies. So that night, I really, he asked for every identity I held, every allegiance I had. And it's kind of like that story of Saul to Paul, where Paul was on the mm-hmm. road to Massacre and Saul, and he was like, he was really, he was zealous for the legacy of his father's father. And so he was really celebrated. He thought he was like doing a good thing for his religion. He thought he was righting the wrongs. And Jesus totally put his hand in front of his face and said, stop. Like the good that you think you're doing is not okay. And so I feel like in my life, I'm suspect of anybody who hasn't had, who has a faith and has never had God put their hand in front of them and say, you know what? These are, you're zealous for the traditions of your father's father. This is, lay it down. This is not good. Because we should have to give up things that we've been handed Mm -hmm. that are our traditions and they're not in the, they're not in heaven and on the kingdom of God. So that, it was excruciating. I felt like I was losing everything that mattered to me. I was quiet about it for 10 years that I found the posture of peace on the battlefield because I didn't want to lose belonging in my mm-hmm. faith community and my family and my friends. And it still, it still is attention to this day. I still know <clears throat> that I don't belong certain places. If I tell people I'm a peacemaker, I'm a soldier and a peacemaker that I will get the boot if they if I tell them the fullness of of the posture that I feel like God asked me to take and Mm -hmm. so it's excruciating but the day the next morning when I woke up I felt the first deep breath of freedom that I had like I didn't know you could feel so free like this idea that you can if you try to hold on to your life, you'll actually lose it. But if you give it away, you'll yes. actually save it. Like, mm-hmm. that's real. <laughs> I yes. think until we're ready to decide how we will show up in the world, mm-hmm. this is who I'm going to be. Like, I didn't know what would happen in war. I didn't know if I would be killed by a roadside bomb by lunch. And all of that, all that insecurity, all of that, like, it just eats you up inside. But when when I laid down my weapon, when I knew I was going to show up and step in front of a bullet for anybody, I was going to do it for Iraqi and America. It didn't matter who, like this was who I would be. There was this incredible amount of freedom mm-hmm. that I had never felt in my whole life growing up. That's, up to that. I, something that sticks out for me is when you're saying that you, you, you heard God speak to you and it, it almost sounds to me, and this is what happened um, to me during kind of my, my, my dark night of the soul is, as some people call it, um, is that all of a sudden Jesus and God were the same person where for so long God was the vindictive scorekeeper who was very much defined by his warrior-like status and protecting, you know, a particular people and a particular land. And, and as Americans, I think that a lot of times we, we adopt that view of God and we separate who God is and who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is. And all of a sudden, when it all comes crashing down on you and you realize that, he was always there and it was always the same and that we can have this relationship um, with God and ourselves that works its way into the world and it just looks completely different. And, um, so yeah, it, it, it sounds a little bit like maybe God and Jesus were all of a sudden became the same person for you versus, I don't know. What's funny about it is that 
Jesus has always been kind of the main guy in the mm-hmm. story for me. I'm just fascinated and drawn to like his humility and how he just who he was. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is I don't know how we told so many stories about Jesus and yet didn't embody those, didn't mm-hmm. live out the ways of Jesus. Jesus was nonviolent. I never heard that in my church. No, never. Jesus was not about conquering or getting power or political power or about making people live according to his rules. So all these stories I learned about Jesus were somehow never connected to actually living the ways of Jesus. And I find that wildly hopeful because where there's a disconnect, there can be a connect. Yes. And there's no there's no arguing about these things. So I think a lot of a lot of us have been living the traditions of our father's father. You know, mm-hmm. war is a complete worldly thing. Mm-hmm. And so one of the biggest questions I want to ask people is if we know that the kingdom of God has no violence in it, no this in it, no sickness, the lion lays down with the lamb. And Jesus says his only enemy is Satan. And we know Satan is because he lies, he kills and destroys, which two out of three of those <laughs> I bank are violence. I'm like, how can we build up the kingdom of God using Satan's tools? Can we do it? Can we do it? I, I, I don't have an answer, but I'm just going to say it's a slippery slope and we're all going to err. And if I'm going to err, I'm just going to work. I'm going to err on using the tools of Jesus and of God, of mercy and extravagant grace and this self-sacrificing love that actually transforms the world and makes things right. Like I'm going to err, but I'm going to choose whose tools I'm going to err with. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I'm a chicken. Maybe because I'm simple. Well, yeah, I mean, that would have been the argument growing up is that, well, that would make God a weak God and that makes him not sovereign or not just. And it's like, but, but no, wait, wait, all of, all of that is embodied in Jesus and they're the same person. Right. And I always like to throw out there too. I'm like, man, God sent Jesus because as as much as he had tried to reveal himself across all of time to humanity, people kept getting him so wrong. And he had blackmailed himself against starting over with a flood. And so his last ditch effort to reveal his, his true character and nature was to send his son in, in this person of Jesus. So if Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, then I'm going to feel pretty confident <laughs> just... <laughs> Taking the example and walking <laughs> that out. I am. Yeah. And I think there's a freedom in that. And I I see it doing incredible things. I see Jesus come alongside the people who his friends are like, don't be by them. Don't be by them. They are out, man. And and if and if that's where Jesus was, then I think if we want to be part of that we're going to have to be in those same places if we want to be part of this yes and I think it's really beautiful so that was that was a bit of my transformation of like accepting Jesus versus taking on the posture of Jesus Mm -hmm. which was self-sacrificing love yeah because that's that's a terrifying posture for us, I think, in general. It's not a winning idea. It's definitely no. not a winning idea. <laughs> it's it's scary. It's scary to let go of our power. It's scary to let go of our notions and our ideas. Um, because in, in many ways, they have served us in the past in this self-protection, but that's not what um, living the life of freedom and love and grace looks like it's this regular and daily giving up of all of that 
and and that's what we saw in 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 Jesus. That's what we saw in who, like you said, and who God dis- knew would encompass everything about Him, so that we could really see what the ground of our being needed to be. And um, I I can't even imagine what that would have been like, and um, and what what was it like when you came. Home. You kind of said that you were in hiding for like 10 years. Yes. <laughs> what, who, who did you kind of feel safe sharing this experience with and, and this shift for you? Like who, who, who felt safe? Because I can't imagine what it would be like going to your family who had served and done all of this too and saying, Hey, by the way, like yeah. this happened in the desert. It was definitely an internal shift that I didn't, I didn't know anybody really that I could talk to. And the only person I had was my husband now, Jake, Mm -hmm. was that I could be real with him. But it was still so confusing because I heard God's voice loud and clear on the battlefield. And then I came back to the culture that raised me raised me to believe it's okay to kill another woman's son because our governments couldn't figure it out or so I was a I think I was a bit of a mess they they weren't doing a lot of PTSD I was the first wave that came back so it was 2004 it was super heightened everybody was like we're winning and there's this very high amount of rah 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 and I don't believe that that serves veterans very well and I don't believe that it allows them freedom and a safe place to say I just went through a life-altering decision you watched 30 seconds of CNN every night on your couch we have different experiences and so when I came back I was a nurse at the hospital as a hospice and oncology nurse and my dad had wanted me to wear my Iraq war veteran like mm-hmm. military pin on my uniform. Sure. And so I did. And after about three months of having every patient, instead of asking me what I saw or what I think, I was the first person, you know, I was probably one of the first people who had been in the war for a year and come back. They just talked at me and they told me what they thought. And I think I remember coming home, taking that military ribbon off my uniform and putting it in a drawer and saying, it's one thing to be a woman in the military in a time that wasn't approved, pretty hated, but it's another thing to be erased in my own life where I didn't even exist. I was just there for for other people to tell me. That was the day that I said I was not going to share this part of myself with anyone around me, mm-hmm. except for Jake. And I put it in a drawer and I, and I closed it. And then I had two kids in two years. Mm. And being at home with kids is magical and it's healing. And I don't remember my first laugh, but I got to see my son's first laugh. And there was probably about five years where I needed to know the world was good. I needed things to heal up inside. And I think being home with my two kids, uh, nap time and snuggles in the afternoon and snacks, like there was something really beautiful about the time that was just hidden almost Mm -hmm. with God. And after I came out of that, my kids were going to kindergarten and I was like, what, what next? You know, you get your life back. Yeah. I think. <laughs> and I bumped into preemptive love online and they were talking about on making violence between communities at odds, between Iraq and America. We, they've each experienced so much violence and death from each other that if we choose to jump forward towards somebody we're told to fear and love them, then we can make new stories and we can unmake violence. And that that brought oxygen to my soul. And so I emailed them. I was like, I'm a veteran and this is 
the first thing that has just like ignited me, given me hope, made me feel like it's not just a sad chapter of my life that mm-hmm. I turn and I and I ignore. Mm-hmm. But there's actually another way. So I feel like they put words to the posture that I feel like God asked me to take in the in the desert. They actually gave me words, and now all of a sudden, I I was ignited to live this out where I lived. I was like, okay, we can do this, and so. I blackmailed my kids and I, we showed up to anybody in our community who raised their hand and said, we've experienced violence, we've lost someone, we're scared, no one's listening to us, we feel vulnerable, our kids are getting beaten up at school, typically all minority communities. Mm-hmm. It started to show up and it changed us. And I feel like it was a freedom that I never had before. I couldn't show up for a vigil at the Orlando nightclub shooting years ago because not because I didn't love people who are scared, but because I was scared of judgment from my team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was scared they're going to take my Jesus card. Yeah. I think God showed me that is such a self-centered kind of love. <laughs> that is really about me instead of the people who are hurting. And so it just gave me a freedom to mourn with those who mourn, to stand alongside people without knowing whether or not we agree. Yeah. And it's changed how I parent, changed how I show up in my community. It's given me a freedom and a hope. And once you start to be with people, you start to care. Like, you can't love people that you don't even see. Yeah. Yep. It's it, Yeah, it's, it's not the same to have that face-to-face interaction and be there with someone in their suffering as it is to like click like on something like we've become so incredibly desensitized because of our screens. Um, and it's so easy to just scroll past something and it might sting a little in that second, but you keep moving. And it's another thing to be there in the middle of, um, the hurt and the pain and, and just provide, provide space, really space for the stories Um, and there's something really powerful in that, I think. Um, so what it, it, what you're doing, I mean, that, that's such a gift. What you're doing is just providing this beautiful, priceless gift to, to people. Um, yeah, I, I wonder what, what is it, what does your community look like now? In so far as whether it's like a faith community or lack thereof, whether it's now that your community is the preemptive love coalition or maybe your neighborhood. I mean, what what does community sure. look like for someone who grew up? I mean, ha- the military provides this brotherhood and this place of acceptance in so many ways for, I think, a lot of people who serve like you are part of us, you know, and then leaving that and then not only leaving that but you're leaving it with now a very different perspective than maybe some of your um fellow soldiers and stuff so what what does community look like now for diana as far as when i started to talk about what happened in iraq and my big shift it was not too long ago and we we changed churches when we are I'm part of a multiracial family. I have a son from Ethiopia. And when I started to see Trevon Martin and Tamir Rice and Michael Brown, like this succession of brown boys being killed and mothers of brown boys, it terrified me. It was the time when I just had to pull my head out because this wasn't something that I experienced growing up being majority culture, white, there's, you know, it just wasn't anything in my reality. And so when, when that happened and our faith community, we said, Hey, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mothers who are terrified right now. Yeah. And I think we should just offer a place to pray and hear people. And when, (laughs) When this, when our community said, no, that's too political. Um, I w- that's the first time I was like, 
huh, like I learned a lot of great things there. And I, and I love, I love the traditions and the faith communities that I've been part of. But that's when I realized that something, this was not a place for my family. Yeah. Well, when love, when love and compassion are now thrown under the banner of political right like i i need challenging no i needed to know that this church that i'd raised my babies in that they didn't they didn't just value my black son's soul but they valued his beautiful brown body outside the church oof girl and nobody could tell me that they did they're like well And so that's when I realized this. And I told you, you know, to love God and love your neighbor is what when the man asked Jesus, what's eternal life? Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized "Hmm, my Christian upbringing has been real heavy (laughs) on one side, but I hadn't really learned much about the other. I had always been told it was political or it didn't matter. It's just about our spiritual lives. So I noticed when we started showing up, we showed up for different vigils and different communities, the African-American community and the LGBT community. I noticed there's a few people who were always there because there's about like 10, which is Mm. very sad of my city of 100,000. They all went to this one church. And I was like, huh. (laughs) So we 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 traced it back. And so this faith community is so different than what I've ever been raised in. It's just so different. But what they do is they're a really small group of people who consider it a habit of their faith to love their neighbors. So every every week, someone from, from this faith community is making dinner and eating dinner with someone who doesn't have food or is homeless in the city. Like they just have this regular rhythm of like, this is how they breathe in their faith and this is how they exhale their faith. So... Mm-hmm. We, I realized like we need to learn this and you yeah. might need to switch denominations to learn, yeah, learn more of an aspect of God that you just haven't yet. And there's no shame in that. Oftentimes I think we get really tribal with our denominations and you're a quitter if you leave, if you change churches and I'm like mm-hmm. that loyalty stuff, check it, check it because all denominations have this really great way, I think, that they, they really understand God and they really teach God, but they are not complete. Mm-hmm. We need each other. And sometimes you're going to have to stand up and move your butt to another yeah. pew. So community, that's been a place that I've learned. It's a place that I'm led and shown opportunities. They've consistently, when I talk to people in the margins of my community, they always mention this church they're like oh they're our friend they've been our friends for 20 years and so it's not a flash in the pan it's not a social justice movement this is the posture that they've always taken and so this is this is community for us and I also find other people who are showing up for people that I don't know they tend to be my community because they're inviting me my kids' pediatrician two years ago said hey I always do put on a Christmas breakfast at the local homeless shelter you guys want to come and I was like sure Sure. (laughs) embarrassing to say I have never really thought about the homeless community in my city especially not on Christmas day when we're typically sleeping in and doing our own thing and definitely where I live it gets deathly cold people die if they it's negative 30 sometimes. And so that Christmas when my whole family plus me were cranky because we have to get up on Christmas morning and it's cold. It's like negative a million. Ooh. And we're all cranky and crabby that we said yes to doing this. And we're walking <laughs> in and there's this crew of fellows um, smoking by the entrance. And I hear one say, oh, man, I'm really glad I woke up today because another hour and I don't I don't know if I would have made it. And it just thumped me in the chest that some people Christmas morning in my city may not have woken up because they're homeless. And that just broke me that I had never 
all these stories about Jesus giving a cup of water to so-and-so, give a coat to this, and if the homeless, invite him in your home. And yet we had said these stories and walked right past the people mm. that I think God tells us are essential to us actually living this out. And so it's been embarrassing to think that I've never noticed, but it's been a really cool opportunity to once we showed up, it all my all my like ignorance kind of dropped away all my don't care dropped away all my like now I notice and then you show up again and now my family cooks dinner for it's a house that just offers hospitality for ordinary families that are experiencing homelessness and we cook dinner and we sit down and the mom's giving me great parenting advice (laughs) and it's just this practice of saying I'm gonna sit with my neighbor Mm-hmm. Not because I'm giving anything, but because I need to know somebody who just happens to be experiencing something that I'm not. Like, we're, I'm connected to this. Yeah. And it's been really humbling and awkward because I'm a real mediocre cook. So, <laughs> people have <laughs> been very great. Like, I stick to Taco Tuesdays because that's <laughs> that up, right? Just a lot of chips and salsa. And we're happy. But it's, it's made a normal normal rhythm of Mm -hmm. seeing people first and their problems second yeah it's it's putting hands and feet to what you do to the least of these you know and I think that um sometimes that gets lost in the noise um is is that what when when we serve and when we love um others and the other you know because it's so easy to serve and love within our churches or within our communities, uh, within our families, that that's when we're serving and loving Jesus and honoring him. And um, you guys seem to have, through trial by fire, man, but you guys seem to be active participants in in, um, thy kingdom come. So that's, uh, that's an, I'm getting chills, like that's such an encouragement. Um, It's such an encouragement to all of us, um, your boldness and your fearlessness, um, because there's, I'm sure that there's still fear and anxiety and worry, but to work through that and that courage that, um, that really only love, love can accomplish in our, in our hearts and in our souls and, and breaking through all these layers that we build on ourselves as we move through this very messy world. You know what? I I hadn't even thought of this, but before we close, if what advice or what word of encouragement would you give to a um, to a service? I'm gonna have to edit some of this. <clears throat> what word of advice um, would you give to a service member who's maybe still in? And starting to grapple with some of this and wanting to live this out, but also still has their commitment to the military. And maybe they're going overseas or maybe they just signed up and they don't even really know what they're getting into. Um, what what would you have said to Diana back in 2003? Now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> I think if someone would have looked me in the eye and said, you are, you are worth so much more than you know, and the good you have in your heart, in your soul, in your hands to rebuild the world Mm. is greater than anything else you see greater than the fear greater than the deployment greater than the gun in your hand i would tell somebody in the military that it's okay to hold two things that you love that you hold them both don't don't throw one out for the other i love my country i want to build my country And each of us are made to do that a little differently. Mm -hmm. And don't discount how 
you're wrestling with this and don't discount the person in front of you, whether that's another soldier or whether that's a civilian. Because at the end of the day, what I noticed when I looked this woman in Iraq in the eyes, I saw my grandma. I saw the strength of a woman who had lived through the Iranian war, who had lived through the bush bombings. She had lived through the American invasion. And guess what? She invited me into her home because she believed that good was greater than bad, that she would never allow her government to tell her who to fear and who to hate. And I, I believe that she told Diana that I was more than the uniform that I wore, that there were people in America and there were people in Iraq who just want to raise their kids and they just want their kids to go to school and have a great life. And our governments are just people and we don't have to wait for them to figure it out or to tell us what's wrong or right. When you're in the moment, do do the best good that you know because we all have to live with that. And and I think we're told stories when we're young and stories that make sense in our 20s and maybe stories that change in our 30s. And I don't just give people permission. You can love people and be your own person. And, and it isn't a betrayal of anyone in the military. It isn't a betrayal of the people that you love to hold more love and, and to change. And I wish that service members and especially combat veterans felt safe to say that they're different now Mm -hmm. that that experience showed them things that they didn't know I wish veterans had more of a voice because everywhere I go when I share my story I typically have veterans come up to me after and say hey that happened to me too where they (laughs) where something just hit them one day they're like oh this isn't the highest good I want to do with my life or I can serve and not do that and but they but they're like but you know I don't tell anybody because you know I don't I don't want to get kicked out of my church or kicked out of my family and these are veterans who don't feel like they can they have freedom of speech and so I would just tell all service members that you are growing you have something beautiful to off the world. It's okay to wrestle. You don't have to throw out anything that you love. You just have to continue to see the person in front of you and know there's more options than us versus them. Like that's always been a lie. And and we don't have to get used by that lie anymore. Yeah. Okay. And no, I'm praying for you. Any service member, any veteran, wherever you're at, however you think or feel, like I've got your back. Yeah. And well, well, I thank you for that. And I think that um, if we can have like, I mean, one of the gajillion takeaways from this conversation is that the biggest lie we've been fed is us versus them. Amen. You know, and, um, and, and love doesn't need agreement. So thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for your story and for your spirit and for who you are in this world. And I'm so grateful to know you and now be your BFF. <laughs> thank you so much, Vanessa. BFFs forever. Absolutely. Absolutely.